Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Mark, welcome to the War Room. Great to be here. Okay, you obviously have several books on Russia. Uh, just out of curiosity, what got you involved with uh, Russia as a topic of interest? Oh, I mean, this is one of the interesting things. Most people, you know, they have, they have some kind of family connection or whatever. Me, not at all. I'm well, half, half Italian, quarter Irish, but born and bred in, in the UK. But it's more, look, I'm, I'm a kind of historian of the old school by training and inclination. I'm all about the stories. And just for me, Russia has always had the best stories. I mean, often the most horrifying ones. But exactly that. The blood is that much bloodier. But the heroism is also all the more impressive. So, yeah, I mean, even you know, since I, I was a school kid, I've just been obsessed with this place. Mm. Okay. And this, since you've been studying it, you said as a school kid, at least kind of been thinking about it, what's changed? So for, for your perspective, I was born in 85. Um, and so the Cold War kind of isn't really part of my lived experience. Like I was alive during it, obviously, but... By the time I kind of started hearing about countries, the cold, you know, the wall was down and stuff had moved forward. And so um, for me, Russia kind of holds a different perspective because that, that era had kind of faded away. Um, and so now with it's kind of reemergence with this, with the, um, the current war in Ukraine and whatnot, it, it's I'm kind of rethinking how to think about Russia. So what has changed in your time of studying? Has a lot changed? Not a lot. Of, I'm, I'm quite curious from someone who studied it for a, Sometimes perspective. Look, the first time I went to what was still then the Soviet Union was when I was probably about 15. It was 1980. It was just before the Moscow Olympics. Um, so, look, I, I've been studying this place while there was still a Soviet Union. Mm. In some ways, I am, shall I say, of the, of the Gorbachev generation mm. in that I really began to study it properly uh, in terms of doing my, my PhD research and so forth in that period of change and reform and collapse in the late 1980s, which led to the downfall of the Soviet Union at the end of 1991. And so on the one hand, look, you know, I've seen how bad it was. You know, I've, seen, I've gone into grocery sh stores in the late collapsing Soviet Union, where there's a, you know, a, this one particularly, Yeliseyevs, it was gastronome number one, supermarket number one in Moscow. And it was an old czarist era one, incredibly ornate, and you go in and literally there would be just nothing on the shelves except yeah. for a, a table in the middle with just sort of piled up chunks of salor, which is basically sort of flavoured pork fat. So, you know, I've, I've seen it in its really bad times, but also I've seen the real enthusiasm and optimism and hope that the Gorbachev years produced. And unfortunately, we then had, yes, the end, the end of the Soviet Union, a decade of you know, chaos, uncertainty in, in Russia, periods of, you know, over gangsterism with gang, you know, gunfire in the streets and you name it. And then Putin and his sort of, you know, basically the almost a new Cold War that he's generated. But all that said, I'm still unfashionably optimistic about Russia. I think Putin represents the kind of last toxic gasp of the Soviet era. Um, so, you know, I mean, on the, you know, on one hand, I've seen all kinds of changes, but in some ways, I think we're still seeing the potential promise that Gorbachev offered mm -hmm. still has to be realized. 
Okay, and so un- unpack if you can a little bit um, about the the current Russia perspective. So you know we're we're getting into these wars and, and kind of what Putin's been doing, but but I, I want to hear how they view their actions. Cause we have, you know, I'm in America. I have a pretty good idea of how the, how the Americans characterize it, but how would the Russians characterize what Putin does? Well, here's the thing. We say the Russians, um, there's uh, what, 143 million of them. <laughs> and I think what we're actually seeing is an increasing gap between Putin and his own population. If you'd ask Putin, I think he genuinely believes himself to be defending Russia against the evil West. I mean, he's not insane. He's a rational man, but even a rational man can make really stupid decisions depending on kind of what he's told and what he believes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the thing. I think Putin has now convinced himself and is surrounded by people who are happy to continue this sort of myth that basically he's facing constant pressure and plots and conspiracies by an evil West. And so even if one looks at this ghastly war in Ukraine, which is clearly an act of imperialism, but nonetheless, you know, I think he genuinely believes, well, Ukraine was being used by the West as a weapon against Russia and so forth. So, you know, that's part of what Putin believes. And the other part is, look, this is a guy who increasingly, when he gives speeches, he parallels himself with kind of great historical figures from Russian past most recently, Peter the Great. And I think this is a man who is concerned with his historic legacy of how they're going to think about him in 100 years' time. And I think, again, you know, so a lot of it is this kind of myth-building. Ordinary Russians, look, some of them believe the kind of toxic propaganda they're told that Ukraine had become a hotbed of fascism and whatever. Most of them don't. But on the other hand, most of them know that they can't really do anything about it, that Putin still has control of the security apparatus, and so, you know, either they are actively opposed to the war, but largely keeping quiet about it, though there are thousands who have heroically protested and gone into prison or been beaten or whatever. And and for the majority, they just kind of are just keeping their head down. They're not quite sure what to believe, but they'll just simply try and live their lives. You know, this is the big thing about living in an authoritarian regime, and this is what it is is that you know that you can't really do much about what the powerful people are doing. So you just try and find what you can in your day-to-day life to keep you going. Yeah, that's a good good reminder. Um, we often talk about you know China a lot on the show and people, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to really measure what the Chinese population thinks about anything because how they're going to answer a question with the fear of, you know, imprisonment or whatever is is going to skew that. Um, to your point, back though about about Putin, um, Chomsky uh, was on the podcast last year, and, and he he was quick to uh, make sure that he wasn't defending Putin's actions, but he was also saying that he could understand why Putin might have this mentality based upon the NATO, uh, how NATO was fo- formed, and they weren't moving further, and they've constantly moved further, and so he seemed to argue that from from Russia's perspective that he thought that he could see why Putin would feel like the walls are come, collapsing around him. Would you agree with that assessment? I mean, I think you have to to accept that. You really have to kind of view what's been going on through a very particular perspective. Look, I mean, obviously, has NATO been expanding eastward? Yes, it has. But not because America or whoever decides that's what's going to happen and, like, you know, forces countries into NATO. 
Quite the opposite is because these countries have been clamoring to come under the protection of NATO and to a large extent precisely because they're worried about Russia. So, yes, you know, there was this implicit guarantee given Russia once upon a time that NATO wouldn't expand. But to maintain that promise, a lot of countries' hopes would have had to have been dashed. And also, look, I think where we, we really come down to it is that there's been a whole variety of missteps. I think there's, you know, one, there's no way of getting around the fact that the West mishandled Russia often, particularly actually in the 1990s. We were too willing to close, turn a blind eye to all kinds of dubious political moves, as long as it was the people whom we supported, you know, Boris Yeltsin. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we couldn't be surprised that so many Russians regard us as sanctimonious hypocrites who talk a lot about freedom and democracy, but don't really mean it when it comes to other countries. That's fine. I mean, yes, one can accept that. And there, there's been all kind of other missteps. But the fundamental point is this, that if you have any kind of understanding of military matters, and you know, Putin has no military experience, but the point is he has people to advise him, you should know that NATO could not actually launch any kind of offensive operations against Russia. That's just not the nature of the forces that, that NATO has, to say nothing of the whole political context of this. The thing is that Putin is too much a product of his past. To him, NATO is basically... America's equivalent to the old Soviet Warsaw Pact, where you had all these countries in Eastern Europe, Czechoslovakia and East Germany and so forth, which were notionally independent, but in practice were just simply totally controlled from Moscow. And their armies were just extensions of the Red Army. Well, he thinks that NATO is basically that, rather than actually being an alliance of sovereign nations. So I think this is it. It, it, it's that Putin may have reasons in his own head for believing this. But the point is, they are based on a misunderstanding of reality. And one of the real problems is that Putin's circle has shrunk. I'm like, you know, he's been in power, essentially, directly and indirectly for 23 years. Now, over 23 years, any authoritarian leader changes. They tend to become more of a caricature of themselves. They surround themselves more and more with, with yes men and mini me's. And that's precisely what's happened to Putin. No one is willing to turn to Putin and say, I'm sorry, Vladimir Vladimirovich, but on that, I think you're wrong. And I think this is the problem. It's so, so you know, I, I, I have only limited um, sympathy for this idea that more or less NATO done it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, you have to, only if you're willing to believe certain things about NATO, does that make any sense? Mm. Okay. And so you, you mentioned his circle has is, is, is changed um, a lot more. Yes, man. There, there seems to be, at least again from this, the, the kind of general public perspective, the the narrative around the oligarchs and the oligarchs could get mad and they could, they could kick Putin out and and whatnot. Is is there really that kind of potential for tension there, or generally the oligarchs are kind of what Putin's doing? They're they're okay with, or could we see some kind of fracture or split where the rich and powerful do go for some kind of uh, regime change? Yeah, you see, that says a lot about our kind of Western perspective when you say the rich and powerful. See, the <laughs> right. oligarchs these days, they're rich but not powerful. Okay. I mean, I think a lot of them are really horrified by what's going on. I mean, look, on a very crude level, what's the point in stealing everything that isn't nailed down in your country? Mm -hmm. If you can't then safely take that money abroad, if you can't moor your yacht off the coast of Italy, and you can't buy your nice swanky penthouse in London, and you can't send your kids to universities in America, you know... 
actually, from their point of view, this is really bad for business. But the point is they now have no real political power at all. They know that if they do not toe the line, then, frankly, Putin can have them arrested, their money sequestered, etc. In some ways, they just simply have become Putin's very, very prosperous hostages. Um, so I, I don't really see them having any kind of room for manoeuvre. I mean, the real people who matter in this system, frankly, are the men nowadays with guns. They're the security apparatus. They're, the, they're these are internal security forces, and the, they're the army and such like. And so long as Putin can control them, then he really doesn't have to care what some pampered rich people think. <laughs> yeah, listen, I, I'm with you. I like taking my yacht and you know being able to park it wherever I want to as well. So I, I can sympathize with that. That's a that's a problem we all understand being able to you know, take our yacht about. So it's a it's a it's a tough task for those folks. Exactly. I mean, this is, you know, I, I don't think we should feel any sympathy for them. They, they, they made their bed. But it's interesting that you might say there are clearly there are some who managed to make the break early enough before things really kind of locked down yeah. and transfer themselves and most of their assets abroad, trying to reinvent themselves. But those people who didn't or couldn't, they're now really stuck. And, you know, if, if again, you know, even if they try to leave the country, you know, what would Putin think about them? This is, after all, a man who does have people whom he regards as traitors killed. Uh, do you really want to to risk that? Yeah, and, and that gets into an interesting question. Putin having having traitors killed. Um, what was it uh, a few years ago? They um, they poisoned someone in was it in London? Maybe I can't. I can't yeah, remember. exactly. Yeah. Yes, there's Litvinenko in London. Yeah, and then so attempt to London. Yeah. So how powerful? How far does the Russian reach really go outside of the borders? Is it something that they have the capacity to to you know to or KGB or whatever um, to kind of reach globally, or or is that kind of fallen away as um, things have decayed, if you will? I mean, I think things have fallen away of late, really, since the war, just because there's been massive expulsions of spies and presumed spies from Russian embassies all around the world. So just simply that the, the network, I mean, because most you know, intelligence officers work under diplomatic cover, you know, they're the second cultural attaché or whatever. Um, so, you know, there, there's just much less of a network and the Russians have to rely more on people so-called uh, under not what's called non-official cover, which is, you know, they're kind of they're not they're not diplomats. They're someone else, which means they don't have diplomatic immunity. And so if you catch them, you don't just kick them out of the country, you put them in prison. That said, I mean, it doesn't take all that much to 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 reach out and kill people. The regime does not do that on a huge scale. There was a really interesting uh, comment that was once made. Putin himself, when he, he was talking to um, a you know, owner of a radio station called Vinidiktov, who's a sort of kind of you know a, a liberal figure, but also still kind of quite close to the elite. Anyway, Putin was talking, and he was making a really sharp difference between enemies and traitors. Enemies you fight against, but there is the chance that someday you could make some deal and live in peace with them. Traitors, though, now traitors, you can do nothing with them but just simply wipe them out because otherwise they'll stab you in the back when they get a chance. And I think this is it. When we have seen killings or attempted killings abroad, they're people whom Putin would regard as real traitors. You know, they tend to be like Litvinenko in London. You know, he was an ex federal security service, you know, kind of the successor to the KGB officer who'd started saying some frankly quite wild things like that Putin was a paedophile and such like, which for the record, I don't believe. Um, you know, it's 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 those kind of people that, that Putin has gone after. 
But even now, they can still do it. I mean, one of the things that the Russians have is close connections between the state and organized crime. Mm. Now, sometimes people say, oh, Russia is a mafia state. That I could get all academic and, and challenge that. But anyway, there are what the Russians call panyatia, understandings between the underworld and the Kremlin. And from time to time, it's clear that these days the government sometimes says to organized crime, we want you to do something. And clearly this is an offer that they can't refuse. And so back in uh, you know, a few years back in Berlin, we saw a, you know, a basically a, a Russian mafia uh, contract killer go and shoot dead a uh, Chech- Georgian Chechen who had been agitating against uh, the Russian state and particularly trying to encourage Georgian uh, Chechen, sorry, in, in Russia to rise up against the Kremlin. So obviously he was decided, you know, he decided he was a target. And instead of using Russian intelligence officers, they just simply tasked a, a, you know, a criminal contract killer to go and do the hit. So, you know, there's still ways that the Russian state can reach out and touch people. But on the other hand, as I said, they, they tend to do it relatively rarely. Mm. Okay. And so let's kind of get into the the the, the, the book we said, um, Putin's Wars. Let's kind of get into that for just a, a second here. Obviously, I have a good reason. I suspect a good reason why you, why you wrote the book. But, but perhaps you were already working on it before the invasion happened of Ukraine. But I'm assuming that's what prompted this current book. Is that correct? Ha, no. The, the okay. interesting thing is, actually, the manuscript was written and submitted to the publishers two weeks before the invasion happened. Okay. okay. So oh, then... oh, I got to ask before you, before, before you go further. I did not think as a non-expert who knows nothing, but I didn't think Putin was going to invade. I thought it was just a bunch of saber rattling. Obviously, 100 percent wrong there. Two weeks before or three weeks before, whatever. Did you think he was going to invade? I thought it was no more than a 30 to 40 percent chance. Okay, well, because it just didn't make sense. Yeah, okay. I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, to 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 our perspective, it just didn't make sense. And anyway, so so I I had submitted um, the, the the manuscript, and then the invasion happened, and then there's that you know very ignoble. Obviously, at first thought is, oh god, this is going to be terrible for forty plus million Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Second thought was, this is going to be terrible for one hundred and forty plus million Russians. Third thought was, hey, this is terrible for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, there was a sort of a hurried period of, of kind of negotiation with the publishers. Well, what's the latest I can drop another chapter in? So, um, in June of last year, I, I, I dropped in a, another chapter on Ukraine and uh, you know, re, redrafted the conclusions to, to reflect that. I mean, fortunately, it's not as though the invasion totally changed my overall assessments of what happened. I mean, my you know, a central theme of the book is that basically military power has been from the very first an absolutely core element of Putin's vision for Russia, that, you know, he thinks Russia is a great power and a great power has to be able to impose its will on other countries. And, and so, you know, that, that, that was there, but yes, the, uh, <laughs> there, 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 there was, there was a certain amount of, of, of hurried redrafting. I have to confess. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier kind of the, the Western viewpoint of things, and, and this is something that when the invasion did happen, I saw people start to say, well, now that Biden is in, Putin feels like he has free reign, whereas when Trump was in, Putin was, I don't know, scared or held in check or whatever. And, and I think that was kind of a, a tad bit of an overstatement of maybe how Putin views the American presidency, but but I also could be wrong. So 
is there something from Putin's perspective when he looks to here and he views um, a, a Obama, a Bush, a whomever, a Trump, a Biden, that he goes, yes, I, I think I can do more here or less? Or is that a kind of on the margin to his decision making? I mean, I don't think it's a core element, but there is definitely a factor. I mean, look, let, let me give you an example. I mean, when when Trump was elected, and there was a whole load of speculation about, oh, Trump is a you know Russian agent and whatever, which I mean, frankly, has turned out to be not really uh, accurate. The interesting thing that struck me is that in my first visit after the election to Moscow, and look, I mean, unfortunately, as of June of last year, I have been indefinitely barred from Russia as an enemy of the Russian people. But anyway, before that point, I traveled a lot and I tried to talk to as many people with different perspectives as possible. Anyway, I, I, I'd lined up a meeting at the Russian foreign ministry with including some key people from their North America desk covering the United States. And I thought, great, this is going to be my chance to get a sense of how the Russians are expecting the Trump presidency to go. And instead, when I turned up, because I spent, what, uh, seven and a half years teaching as a professor at uh, New York University, they were all asking me questions about, well, what's Trump going to do? And what does Trump think? And I was saying, look, guys, you know, I'm not an American specialist. I'm not an American citizen, as you can tell from the accent. And in any case, you know, I've lived in New York, which is arguably a country unto itself, never mind the United <laughs> States. Um, yeah. But again, it really struck me that these were people who honestly didn't really know what was, you know, what to expect from Trump and clearly hadn't anticipated that Trump would be elected. They thought Hillary Clinton was going to be a shoe in. They were, insofar as they were supporting Trump, they were supporting all kinds of different disruptive actors, because in a way they were just trying to stir up trouble because they were genuinely worried about Hillary Clinton. They felt that she was implacably hostile to the current regime in Russia. Um, so, I mean, I think that you know, clearly they, 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 do, they do care. And they do look at different presidents and think, well, you know, is this one more likely to be, you know, quite uh, tough in responding? With Biden, I think, you know, there is a, a marginal impact of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, which I think did help convince Putin and co that they could basically take Ukraine. Because they, remember, they were expecting this to be a two week operation. That at mm -hmm. the end of two weeks, that's it. Done deal. Um, and they thought that actually, you know, America had demonstrated that it wasn't going to be sort of particularly strong in, in its response. So, you know, they, they make these assessments. But as I said, I don't really think it, it's crucial. I think it's one of the factors they look at, but not the determining one. You went back to the you mentioned the two week narrative there, which was mm -hmm. definitely something, you know, again, I I. I had no illusion. I, I thought, no, there's no way I'm on the record quite clearly saying they're not going to invade. I, I can't. This seems to be crazy. Now it's a lot longer than two weeks, um, for sure. And you've talked about Putin's inner circle. How do we, I mean, you, you hear this, we talk a lot of China on the social, I reference China quite a lot, but you hear this about Xi Jinping and kind of his inner circle. How has the inner circle been able to massage this, like, how, 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 how do they handle that? You, you see what I'm getting there? Because it's like, from our standpoint, you have, you mentioned Afghanistan, and it was quite um, embarrassing what happened to the U.S. and Afghanistan. Um, and, and, then, and yet here's a thing to, which is quite embarrassing to 
Russia's military prowess. There, there's no chance that they're going to roll across Europe. They can't take Ukraine. And I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Ukraine. I'm just saying factually, if it's taken a year to make this progress, the next the next um, blitzkrieg is not is not coming from Russia right now. So it's almost it seems to have hurt their their capacity to begin to be viewed as a real military titan, except for the nuclear aspect. How 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 does that work out with the inner circle? Because if they said, "Yeah, we can think this can go," Putin is he is he? I mean, is he killed a few? Is he? <laughs> like, I would be nervous. I guess if I'm getting that. Yeah, look, I mean, again, it's worth noting that Putin, bizarrely, he is loyal to his own. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so long as, as it were, people are good soldiers to him, he will look after them. So even if he sacks them, you know, that's all he'll do. He'll dismiss them. They'll probably get some some kind of cushy non-job somewhere, but they'll be fine. It's, you know, again, so long as they're not traitors. Um, and I think it's interesting. Look, it's clear that this this war has shattered not just Russia's military reputation, but also Russia's military capability. 20 years of military reform burnt through in fewer than 20 months. And that's clearly manifesting itself already. I mean, if you look at Central Asia, an area where, you know, where Russia had been able to still maintain control to a large extent by being the kind of the, the security guarantor. You know, don't worry about Afghanistan. We've got a military base in Tajikistan. And if, if Afghan jihadists start coming across the border, we deal with them, that kind of thing. Well, now, frankly, you're seeing Central Asia. No one's really putting their faith in the Russians anymore. If anything, they are looking to China. And that's actually a bit of a problem for China because China doesn't really want to get involved in that. But nonetheless, if it wants to continue to be a player, it's having to. So generally speaking, yes, you know, Russia's in China. And this is, in my opinion, definitely Putin's last war. He just isn't going to have the military capabilities to do anything after this. The point is, how do you spin that? How do you excuse that? And the answer is, and we've had this for some months now, is to reframe this as, look, you know, we went in because of, you know, all the bad things that Ukraine was doing and Ukraine's full of fascists and all kinds of other nonsense. Now they're saying this isn't really about Ukraine. This is about NATO and the West, that they are using Ukraine as a kind of a, a weapon and a threat against Russia. And what's happening in Ukraine is actually really a proxy war with all of NATO with all of NATO's strength. And the idea is, firstly, this is meant to try and mobilize Russians. The motherland is in danger. You know, you're very much getting Putin almost kind of trying to frame this as if it's a sort of a conflict equivalent to World War II. Now, again, I mean, you know, World War II, the Nazis, you know, genuinely wanted to basically, you know, exterminate large portions of the Russian population, the Soviet population, turn all of the Soviet Union into sort of colonized territories. I mean, the idea that this is what's going on now is is is, is frankly uh, would be laughable were it not 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 so disgusting. But the point is that's how they're explaining away their defeats or their their lack of success. Rather, they're saying actually we're not doing too badly considering we're really up against NATO. So you know it 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 may not have much traction, but that's about the best they can do. But the interesting thing is last point I make on this is you know, we have a tendency to think that more or less everyone is united against Russia. Well, if you go to the global south, you get a very different perspective because there the Russians, amplified by the Chinese, have been pushing the, the line that this is an anti-colonial war, that America, this you know arrogant global hegemon America, wants to try and impose its will on Russia, 
Russia wasn't willing to bend the knee. And so the Americans were using Ukraine again as a sort of weapon against Russia. And Russia is fighting back because Russia will not be told what to do. And in a lot of countries in the global south, countries particularly that, you know, their experience of imperialism has been at the hands of the British or the French or the Belgians or whoever. Actually, this narrative has a surprising amount of traction, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, I think this, this idea that they present, you know, that they can present themselves as the the only heroes willing to stand up against America actually has some mileage. Yeah, I, I'm reminded of a conversation uh, with a good friend of mine from South Africa. And when Castro died, he was he had changed his WhatsApp photo to Castro. I'm like, like, what's going mm-hmm. on here? And he and he went through just how Castro supported South Africa during apartheid and you know stuff I you know, never even thought about. And I was like, oh wow, okay. And it was it was we were really good mm-hmm. friends. It was quite interesting that we both yeah. viewed Castro about as completely opposite as, as two people probably could. Um, and so. I think it's a good reminder for the audience. Once you get outside the U.S., there there is um, a lot of different opinions about various nations and and kind of yeah how those interactions played out or, or are playing out. And so I think that's a that's a good reminder. And and honestly, it was a, it, it was a real Western blunder. Um, you know, for for months we didn't really pay attention to the global South on this war. Um, despite the fact that actually, you know, the impact of this war on energy prices, on food prices, it's much more catastrophic in, say, sub-Saharan Africa than it is in, in Europe or North America. Um, so in some ways, you know, we gave the Russians and, the, and as I said, and the Chinese months of kind of time of, of free air time. And yes, now we're beginning to try and contest that narrative. But as I said, it's it's a bit late. Yeah. Yeah, that is a whole podcast we could do about um, Western foreign policy and how it disproportionately impacts um, the global South in this case or whatever. And and no one really talks about that. That is a a um, point of frustration for at least me. What what's okay? So we have the military. I'm gonna say failure, a disappointment at least. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, what is different about this war, this this Putin war versus the previous ones? scale really more than anything else see up to now for all putin's kind of bare-chested macho posturings he's fought small wars that russia really had no serious um risk of 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 losing Mm. um in the war in chechnya against some small region or you know breakaway region of the russian federation or a war against georgia again tiny little country russia basically wins in five days but doesn't win as well as it should but nonetheless there was never really any question. Um, Crimea, textbook seizure of, of, of a region, but particularly it was an area where the Russians already had thousands of troops and at a time when the Ukrainian state was in total disarray. You know, these have all been small and easily winnable wars. Now, this one, again, I think Putin had kidded himself that the Ukrainians would not resist. He doesn't really think Ukraine is a country. He doesn't really think that um, the Ukrainians, you know, really sort of are, 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 are a people. Now, in that context, again, I think he thought this was going to be just some sort of larger scale rerun of, of, of Crimea. But in practice, you know, he was taking on a country with more than 40 million people, a country which, frankly, has spent the last eight years planning, training and thinking about this war because they expected that at some point they'd be in, 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 in a conflict with Russia. Um, and 
frankly, the Ukrainians had a secret weapon, which is Vladimir Putin, in that, you know, he didn't really allow his generals to run the war. Mm. He planned it himself with a collection of, of his sort of fellow spooks. And so, you know, so many, frankly, elementary military blunders were taking place. So it's a very, very different type of war. And is this is this ties into that larger narrative of the inner circle getting smaller, um, less ability to see outside of his own ego? And so that's why this this larger scale attack, planning known war, has been a blunder. He just he just can't he can't step outside of himself is what it and so mm-hmm. so but when he he when he this is what I find fascinating is you, you have that and you have someone like Xi Jinping, um, who he talks to. Um in, in some would argue the same about the same about Xi Jinping. Can they not see outside of each other's self though? <laughs> can can someone like that be like, hey bro, you're about to go into this thing and we've 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 read our own analysis and perhaps perhaps you should reconsider this, or do they not respect each other at that level? I think that there's um frankly a lot of the sort of notional friendship between Russia and China is really more to scare the bejesus out of us rather than anything real. I mean, look, you know, you, you, you had shortly before the invasion, Putin and Xi meeting and saying that they were calling the, what they had as a friendship without limits. In practice, you know, China has done nothing really to seriously help the Russians in this war, quite the opposite. Um, and, and, and so I, I think there's limits. But also, look, I think Putin didn't know until the very last minute, literally the week before, whether he absolutely was going to pull the trigger. Putin is a notorious ditherer. Again, totally unlike the the sort of the um, representation of Putin. In fact, he he you know he agonizes. He tends to make decisions very late. He doesn't like taking tough tough moves. So in that context, um, you know, a I I just don't think that the Chinese would have really wanted to get involved in that. B again, there wasn't a clear decision to warn him against. Um, and 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 see, I, I'm you know I'm not convinced that Putin would have believed the Chinese had his interests at, at heart, because also look from China's point of view, this isn't a bad war. Look, either Russia wins, in which case the West is going to be descend into a period of soul searching and mutual recrimination, which will divide it and distract it, which is good for China, or Russia doesn't win or actually loses. And it continues to be uh, isolated. It gets weaker and weaker. And really, as a result of that, it becomes more and more dependent on Beijing. Remember, look, back in 2015, I was talking to a recently retired, fairly senior Russian military officer. And his view was that in 20 years' time, in other words, by 2035, Russia will have had to have made a choice, either between, between being an ally of the West of some kind, and I'm not talking about joining NATO or whatever, but, you know, reaching some arrangement, or a vassal of China's. As far as he was concerned, you know, it was it was that stark and that binary. So I think from China's point of view, this war actually is making um, making the Russia more and more likely to be a sort of a, a vassal of China's. Hmm. Yeah, that's that would hurt the the old Putin bride there. I think. <laughs> but you mentioned him being kind of the the last of that era would the new era that you're referring to would they embrace something like that um look i find it really interesting that when it comes to china specifically i found a, a real generational divide between putin 
And those people very much in his circle, who are all basically between the ages of about 68 and 74, for whom, you know, the the war with the West was the defining thing. This is going to basically make or break their, their futures and their reputations. And in a way, nothing else matters. And if it means they become more dependent on China, ah, never mind, you know, because it's going to be someone else's problem. Whereas the 50-somethings and the early 60-something-year-olds, the next political generation, people who are you know, waiting for their chance to be taking over, they were much, much more concerned about China. Um, you know, for them, exactly, you know, yeah, the West, you know, obviously we're in a struggle with the West, but thing, these people think of themselves as Europeans. Um, they see China as something different. They see the fact that they have one of the longest land borders in the world with a China, which is not only rapidly rising, but also rapidly arming and becoming more and more aggressive, I would suggest, in the world stage. And so, you know, that's where there was real concern ab about China. But the point is exactly, but the moment for Putin, uh, that's that's going to be someone else's problem. Why should he care? So I want to go back. That, that's kind of a China angle. I'll go back to something you mentioned earlier about the NATO expansion and the, the European countries. Something that I've had a problem with for, I don't know, better part of six, seven years now, is kind of having an, an energy background. Mm -hmm. This this question about, you know, we'll, we'll pick on Germany. Um Germany or whomever, uh, getting energy from Russia while wanting NATO support. And, and for me, um, it, it kind of has that feel of you want to do a deal with the mafia because you're going to get better prices, but you want the cops to protect you from the mafia at the same time. It's kind of like that double, like, <laughs> you want the best of the both worlds. Maybe maybe I would, I'm curious if you would agree with that characterization, A. Uh, but then B, how... If any, like these countries right now who are seeing really high energy prices, um, is there more sympathy for them to want to end? I mean, not not to end the war, but to um, perhaps come to a ceasefire, a um, splitting of the Ukraine or whatever, so that they can get they can you know, kind of get back to business as usual. I mean, I think the honest answer is a very unsatisfying yes and no. Look, I think when it comes to energy, I think pretty much that boat has sailed. I think, you know, even countries like Germany, who absolutely, I mean, you know, the German economic model was based on cheap energy from Russia, regardless of the risks and the costs. Now they are committed to basically, you know, breaking their dependence on, 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 on Russian energy. And even if the war ended tomorrow, firstly, Russia is just still too toxic politically. But also, you, you'd never know when the Russians might try and use that as an instrument against you. So long as I think Putin's in the Kremlin, people are not going to trust Russia. So I, I don't see European energy supplies once again turning to Russia. On the other hand, though, you know, you talk about business as usual. I mean, I think there is a, a much broader sense by a fair number of countries in Europe who would actually like to not you know, be barred from Russian markets, not to, to be able to, unable to buy other things from Russia, and perhaps more importantly, not to be spending so much on Ukraine. Look, we are spending billions of dollars, euros and pounds every month to keep the Ukrainian war machine working, and just as importantly, to keep the econ Ukrainian economy afloat. And I think that is the real issue of, of why there are, you know, there are people and countries which frankly would, you know, would be perfectly happy if some deal could be struck 
even if it wasn't the greatest deal for Ukraine, mm-hmm. if it allowed them to start scaling down this kind of massive expenditure. Well, and there's obviously some people who they might want to scale down for uh, different reasons than someone else. As you said earlier about Russia, there's no monolithic thought process on either stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it is, it, it has been at least for me frustrating to see the Russia-Ukraine war because it was, um, I always kind of poke fun at the either or fallacy, you know? So if you are, if you're questioning the war, then you're for Russia, obviously. And if you're against the war, then you're for Ukraine, obviously. And so it's mm-hmm. just it's kind of this, you, you, there's this two stark camps that either you're pro-Russia or you're anti-Russia. And it's like, that's, that's nonsensical. There's, there's plenty of other things to consider. Mm. And we, you touched, you touched on earlier about inflationary prices and how it's disproportionately impacting um, certain parts of the world. At some point there is some human. So there's a humanitarian aspect to what's happening in Ukraine. There's also a humanitarian aspect to other parts of the world who aren't necessarily um, have a geopolitical interest in this. And there's parts of the world that are close to this that are getting you know hammered with prices as well. How can we have a respectful, thoughtful conversation trying to balance out these differing factors and not to commit the either or fallacy, either you're pro-Russia or mm. against Russia? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the massive questions, and it goes way, way beyond Ukraine at the moment or this, this, this issue. Generally speaking, in this current era, it's hard to find nuanced conversations. Generally, everything seems to be sort of coming down to easy and artificial binaries of one extreme or, or the other. So there's, you know, there's a, there's a much bigger issue than just talking about the Ukraine crisis. But I think also there's, there's two other factors. First of all, you've got to recognize the degree to which the Ukrainians in general and President Zelensky in particular have been absolutely brilliant at managing us. I mean, you know, Zelensky as an adv- advocate for Ukraine is 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 masterful um not just in terms of his own sort of comportment and such like and that sort of very famous soundbite when the beginning of the war the americans offered to evacuate him and he said you know i need ammunition not a ride you know all the way through to his willingness to basically call out some countries and break all the rules of diplomatic procedure in order to try and get the most support he can now, I mean, that's, and, uh, you know, I, I, I think he, as I say, has, has been brilliant about that. And, you know, it's his job and it's the Ukrainian's job to get as much stuff as they can because they're involved in an existential struggle for themselves. But again, what that does mean, though, is they have had to frame this conversation in these very unused terms that we are fighting for Western values and goodness and decency against evil and, you know, there, this, this is like the Lord of the Rings. There, there is no middle ground. You, you can't try and reach some kind of negotiated settlement with Sauron. Um, the second thing is precisely actually the, frankly, the horrific acts that Russian soldiers have carried out. And indeed, the horrific campaign that the Russians are, you know, bombarding Ukraine's critical national infrastructure, trying to deny its citizens electricity in the height of winter and all that kind of thing does does make it hard not to think of this as as some kind of straightforward um, struggle between good and evil. But the point is that there are, shall we say, many kinds of good. And the, 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 the issue that is hardest, I think, to communicate is that you can be absolutely supportive of Ukraine. And in, in terms of it, it's, you know, its citizens' right to, to life and to not be shelled and hit by cruise missiles. 
and Ukraine's sovereignty, while at the same time not just simply saying that you know Russia is just simply a, a country of unutterable evil, and everything that hits Russia and harms Russia is is, is a good thing. Um, and I think this this is one of the problems. I mean, you know, neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians, in their own ways, make it easy to have a nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. And the Ukrainians, I can't blame the Russians. I absolutely can. But one way or the other, it means we're constantly having to fight against the, the simple caricatures. Yeah, I, I remember early on someone was saying that you know Russia has a real nuclear arsenal, and from his calculation, he was concerned by helping the Ukraines fight that you could go to a nuclear war, and for him that risk was not worth supporting the Ukraine. So he wasn't saying that he doesn't care what happens. He felt that there's a greater risk that we might go to nuclear war. And people are like, oh, well, you must hate this. And it's like, well, mm. I'm not sure if I agree with that analysis, but there, there is at least a consideration that nuclear war is on the table now. And so, and, and so it's like, you can't even think, you can't even unpack whether or not we agree with that. You can't even unpack that as a viable potential consideration. And it's, it gets, yeah. it's frustrating. So, um, Okay, a couple questions here to wrap it up for you. From Putin's perspective, today, what is his big biggest success been? I mean, you mean in this war? I mean, generally speaking, I think it will be the annexation of Crimea. You know, Crimea is this part of Ukraine that pretty much every Russian, even the ones who frankly hate Putin, think he's rightfully Russian. So I think that that's he, he regards as his his greatest triumph. Um, I mean, in this war, I think the answer is just simply hanging on. From his point of view, it's now a case of a sort of an an endurance contest. Can he outlast the West's willingness to continue to support Ukraine? Okay. When researching a book like this, I'm sure there's something that comes across that you didn't realize, didn't know, they surprised you. What was the biggest surprise, surprising thing that you found? Well, I mean, in some ways it was difficult because this is not like a book that I just thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to sit down and research it. In some ways, I've been researching it for most of my academic career because I'm particularly interested in security affairs and and military matters. And also had lots of conversations with Russian soldiers and as well as Western security people who who watch the Russians. I think it was more when you pull all the little bits together, you know, You've, you've got a whole variety of jigsaw pieces that you know have been kind of accumulating in a box, but it's only when you actually try and piece them together that, that you really see the pattern. And I think it was particularly that, you know, of 23 years of Putin being in power, the fact that only three of those years has Russia not been at war in some way, shape or form. It's actually when you realise, my God, the degree to which this has been a war fighting presidency, that's what really came, came to, to home to roost. Okay. What was the one unanswered question? You mentioned the jigsaw puzzles. I'm sure there's at least one thing that you wish you could have gotten an answer to uh, when researching this. Well, look, I mean, I'll, I'll set aside all the kind of Ukraine invasion related stuff because that's just kind of too, too, too obvious. I think that actually, for me, the, the, the big uncertainty is this. Back when Putin was only recently in president, you know, when, when in sort of the early 2000s, um, when, you know, at first for a while he talked positively about we can reach some kind of arrangement with the West and increasingly he got disillusioned with that and increasingly got hostile. But nonetheless, you know, at this time he was already dumping huge amounts of money in, in the Russian military. What I would love to know if I could get Putin, I don't know, drunk or hooked up to a polygraph um, is in those early years, 
did you think do you even then think we would be at this state did you think that basically some kind of straightforward confrontation with the west even if it's not involving direct shooting but you know we are in an economic and political and social and legal and cultural war with 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 russia like it or not mm. did you always think it was going to end up here okay 10 years from now we have you back on the show hopefully sooner but if it's 10 years from now <laughs> okay we have you back on the show what's the story around russia um 10 years from now I think and hope that we'll be talking about how Russia pulled itself back together after Putin's departure. Um, And the question will be precisely how that new generation of political leaders who are not, you know, they're not youngsters, as I say, but but they're they're not of that same kind of immediate post-imperial generation. This is the thing about Putin and co. These are people who never have not got over the end of the Soviet Union and the end of empire how they reassert their relationship with the West. I think that they will basically be, you know, pragmatic kleptocrats, busy just trying to steal what they can from the country, but they will want to have a better deal, better relationship with the West. So I think it, it it's in a way how Russia comes back into the world after the nightmare of the Putin regime is over. That's going to be the discussion. Okay. And leave us with um, this um, for People like myself who are studying from afar aren't experts trying to follow the news. Um, obviously, we're going to follow your work, but who, uh, like, who some other journalists or authors or whatever that we should go? Yeah, let's listen to what they have to say. Well, I mean, on on Ukraine, there's there's a whole bunch of kind of Insta books coming out. Uh, the absolute best of the crop is by Owen Matthews, a book called Overreach. So, if you want to understand the real detail of, about Ukraine, then that's the book. Otherwise. The main thing is, look, there is some amazing work still being done by Russian journalists, a few of whom are still in the country, many of whom are not, but they're still working on Russia. Um, So there's an outlet called Meduza, M-E-D-U-Z-A, which essentially, you know, is 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 a Russian news outlet, even though it's, you know, it's, it's now in exile, which, you know, provides really good analysis. But above all, it's a voice from inside Russia, not just from what Western journalists can get at. And the other one is there's a TV, Russian TV outlet called Dozhd, D-O-Z-H-D, which means rain, um, which is increasingly producing also English language coverage. And I think it's important to show that, you know, actually there are still Russians who are digging into all the, the, the dark shadows of the Putin regime. Okay, that is helpful. Um, okay, link to the book, to your Twitter uh, got your 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 website here. Anything else that you want people to go to know about to follow? Well, I mean, I have my own podcast, also called In Moscow Shadows, which is uh, you know very much a, a personal venture in which I ramble on about all things Russia. But people are, are welcome to follow that as well. Okay, we will link to that in the show notes. Um, Mark, thank you for coming on the show today. My great pleasure. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.